Thought Leadership from PwC. They did make some changes that I think will impact the amount of effort that companies will have to uh, put in. It's certainly in the early years. These revised drafts that were issued on Friday last week, it was really a, a big big moment because uh, just gets us one step closer to, to getting final standards. Today we're back talking ESG, this time with the most recent developments on reporting under the European Union's Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, that is CSRD. This is PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. And thanks so much for joining us today. Companies with operations in the EU are one step closer to reporting on a wide range of sustainability matters with the release of updated draft European Sustainability Reporting Standards, that is, ESRSs. New drafts of the ESRSs were released on June 9th for a final four-week feedback period and are expected to be finalized in July. They'll be effective for the first batch of companies in January 2024 for reporting in 2025. Our guests today are Andreas Ohl, Global Sustainability Technical Leader, and Emily Kirsch, a director on my team who has been following CSRD very closely. They have the first take on what's new and what's changed to help you get ready for reporting. So much to cover, so let's get started. Emily, Andreas, welcome back to the podcast for an episode we've been waiting to record, I think, for at least the past couple months, because we are going to be talking about the release of the new draft ESRSs. That would be the European Sustainability Reporting Standards that I believe, and you guys will get into more detail on this, we were originally expecting back in April. So exciting that that finally happened last week on June 9th. But perhaps before we dive straight into things, because we never know where people are sort of entering the conversation, it may be good to just take a step back and give some context. So Andreas, maybe start with you, and can you give us sort of a big picture about what it is we're talking about today? Yeah, so the big picture is that the EU has something called the Green Deal, which has many different elements of it, and one of those is CSRD. Those other elements haven't changed. What's changed is under CSRD or the ESRS, so the actual specific reporting standards around sustainability topics, and that's what um, has changed. So CSRD is unchanged, and the broader Green Deal and its objectives around addressing some of these global concerns around climate change and the like, that, that has not changed. All right, and I'm going to jump in here, and again, hopefully our listeners have heard us talking about this before, but the specific um, directive we're talking about is the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, and then these ESRSs that we're going to discuss are the reporting standards under that directive. So we'll try not to make it too confusing when we're talking today, but Emily, anything to add in terms of sort of the timeline of what we're seeing and why this is sort of such a momentous event that it deserves its own podcast? Yes, it's definitely been an evolution of these standards. I think we were actually just talking this morning that this was the, I think, perhaps third draft of the third official draft of these we've seen. So these standards were originally issued for public consultation a little over a year ago by EFRAG, which historically um, advised the European Commission on adoption of IFRS into EU law. Um, 
They did their own public consultation, handed it over to the European Commission in November of last year uh, as their own technical advice. And so over the last seven months, the European Commission has been doing a lot of work and its own consultations and discussions to get feedback from stakeholders. And so these revised drafts that were issued on Friday last week, it was really a, a big big moment because uh, just gets us one step closer to, to getting final standards. All right. And I assume we're going to talk about the broader timeline later. We can come back to that sort of at the end so people understand how this fits in. But I think, so as you said, we saw the initial draft standards last spring. Then we saw draft standards in November. And I think one thing for many, particularly U.S. companies, that really stands out, particularly in comparison to the climate, the SEC climate proposal, which is relatively narrow. And again, there's a lot required, but compared to the CSRSs, it's a lot less uh, in comparison. And so I think people have really been waiting for this draft because there are comments made by the president of the European Commission and Commissioner McGuinness that talked about actually reducing these standards by 25% and introducing more transitional provisions. And so I think people have been sort of eagerly awaiting to see what did 25% really mean? Is that 25% less standards? Is it 25% less metrics? Is it 25% less work? Like, there's lots of ways to think about that. And then in addition, what this transition was going to look like, because the d- original requirements were everything all at once. So, Andreas, what what can you share? I think the first thing is when the 25% was put out there in the in the public domain, it wasn't really specific as to what it related to. So, it's certainly no one went out and said, we're going to reduce the ESRSs by 25%. It was more at the broader, you know, there's other elements of reporting and company effort around the, the Green Deal. So it was at a, a much higher level, this 25%. So um, maybe the best place to start with this is what they didn't do. So they didn't re- remove 25% of the standards or 25% of the words. And we'll get into a little later some of the things they did do. What they didn't do is take the 12 standards and reduce it by 25% to go down to, say, nine, right? That, that's, there's, there are still 12 standards, and they also didn't say, well, let's remove 25% of the words or 25% of the bullets or 25% of the disclosures. So we'll get into some details of what they did actually do, um, but that was not the, uh, the approach they took. Now, that being said, they did make some changes that I think will impact the amount of effort that companies will have to uh, put in. It's certainly in the early years. and. You know, I think one of the themes in all of this that they understood is some of these topics are very new for some companies. So a lot of companies already were doing a lot of reporting around climate, and they do think climate is sort of the most important issue. So that's probably the one that was least affected in all of this. But uh, that the theme of people may need a little bit more time for, I'll call it general practice to establish in some of the other areas like a biodiversity, which they say is an important area, but companies aren't that far along. And there's some things going on with other standard setters that will hopefully put companies in a better place in a few years' time. And so just giving time is uh, is one way to deal with the 25% as opposed to just eliminating requirements. Well, and I think maybe I can chime in here because we mentioned these 12 standards and Emily and Andreas can check, check me on this. But of those 12, there's two cross-cutting standards, five in the environment area, four on uh, S or social, and then one on governance. And so, and I think, again, that's important, depending on how much you know about these or otherwise, but it really does cover the broad 
spectrum of sustainability. And so I do think for some, they probably were hoping few of those topics would be dropped. We do have some transition provisions for some companies that'll be helpful. But Emily, what's your sort of overall observation when you looked at these changes? Yeah, I think one of the biggest changes that I noticed was that more was now going to be subject to the materiality assessment. So in the draft standards issued last November, um, you had the the cross-cutting standard ESRS2 on general disclosures that was mandatory. You had uh, E1 on climate that was mandatory, certain of the own workforce metrics, as well as about 60 or so different individual data points that were all required under EU law that were going to be mandatory for companies to report on. Now, uh, in these revised drafts, we're seeing that only the general disclosures standard will be mandatory for all companies. Um, everything else will still be subject to the materiality assessment. And I think one item, um, so there, this morning, actually, there was a open public session where the European Commission presented uh, an overview of, of the changes that they had made to the prior drafts. And one of the things that they really pointed out and focused on is the fact that subject to materiality does not mean that they are voluntary. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think there had been some concern or maybe they had heard things that people were now indicating that these were going to be voluntary, but it's, it's very different. So that, w- that was definitely one of the biggest observations I had. So, and, and for our listeners' benefit, when Emily says this morning, she's talking about June 14th. So we're releasing this on June 15th. But I do know from Emily's uh, feedback to me that that uh, webcast was very helpful from the point of view if you're digging in and interested. So we can also, if there's replays available, we'll include some links to that in um, in the show notes so people can go back to that. And it was definitely a hotly debated topic from my perspective. There were a lot of um, the participants who expressed support, others who did not, just depending on kind of who their key stakeholders were and what perspective they were taking. So there were definitely mixed views on whether or not this was a, a positive change. Interesting. I think most of our audience is probably viewing it as positive, <laughs> but it's a, it's a good point. So. Um, Emily, let me ask you one question, though, because you mentioned from those 60 data points in the climate and otherwise that some of the reason that was originally mandatory was because it's required under EU law, other EU law. And so I know you're not an attorney, but any perspective on like, I, I don't quite understand that interaction. Is it just they're not required if they're not material? That's right. Yeah. So these are data points that are required under primarily SFDR, so the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, um, so which primarily applies to like large financial institutions, other financial market participants. And so um, you know, they needed this information from their investees in order to satisfy their own disclosure requirements, which is why these were originally mandatory. So now there's essentially an assumption that if they're not disclosed, if a company doesn't disclose them, then they're not material for that company. All right. Very helpful. And then Andreas, from your point of view, what is sort of your big picture observations? Well, the, the first thing would be just building on this, that um, you know, the the objectives of CSRD and the Green Deal haven't changed. So if you suddenly move from, I was going to disclose a lot of information to nothing's material, that's probably not where they're intending to uh, intending to go. And, you know, there is a regulatory framework behind this. So, uh, you know, where people will potentially challenge your materiality judgments. So I would just keep that, uh, keep that in mind. So, you know, the other thing is just 
they did explicitly make a number of the requirements voluntary. And I think that's consistent with this theme of we want to develop best practice. And then maybe some of those things might, while they didn't say this, maybe some of these things might just become mandatory or just the norm in the future once practice has sort of sorted some of the the challenges out. Um, So some of those are areas where I think, because another one of the themes is just data availability or data quality. And so they, I think, picked on some areas around biodiversity and in the value chain around workforce, but workforce that's not your legal employees, where there may be some challenges getting the, the information and say, well, it's going to take some time for companies to develop the processes and the systems to collect that information such that it's reliable. And so maybe we make some of those things voluntary for now. And then, uh, you know, again, potentially that, uh, that changes in the, in the future. Okay. So we, let me take another step back because when we were talking about the 25%, we went through a bunch of different scenarios of how the 25% could be effectuated. But there was another rumor that had been circulating that maybe they wouldn't issue actually all the standards right now and they would just hold some of them back and then the rest would happen at a later date. Obviously that didn't happen. We had 12 in November. We still have 12 now. So Emily, any perspective on why we didn't see that or, or why we saw what we did. So yes, that's right. Uh, you know, the ambition level for these standards is quite high and the commission indicated that they thought it was really important to still maintain this comprehensive approach. So that is why they decided to keep all of the sector agnostic standards together as one package rather than finalizing them piecemeal. Um, instead, they did introduce more phase-in provisions. So uh, some of those uh, FRAG had already proposed uh, for, that would apply for all companies, but the European Commission did include and propose uh, additional phase-ins that would help all companies, um, but also in particular smaller companies that might need more time um, to really help them apply these standards more effectively. And I think one of the, the themes that I heard um, from them in their communications was around this this need for proportionality. So really making sure that companies that are that you know maybe don't have as many resources are a bit smaller have the time that they need to do this reporting in in a in an appropriate way. Well, and I think one point on that, Emily, that's interesting is this idea of sort of a comprehensive set of standards. And I know for some listeners, they maybe have been happier if it was more piecemeal. But I definitely think we've talked before on the podcast, we've talked on the webcast about the fact that these topics are so interrelated. And so trying to pull out pieces, then you really can you know, wind up in a in misbalance. And so I think we as a firm are supportive of the complete package. However, I think also very supportive of the fact that they are allowing some of these phase-ins or or otherwise. So Andreas, when we talk about phase-ins, what types of things are we seeing? So one of the things they did was they created this new threshold of companies with fewer than 750 employees. That was not something that was there before and created some special provisions for those companies with the idea being that they may be the ones that are struggling most with uh, with some of the data challenges. And that's sort of the theme that runs through these. Um, so one of the things they did was for scope three emissions that they've granted a one-year um, phase-in for that. Um, same thing for own workforce. Um as well as uh, some of the biodiversity provisions. There's a two-year phase-in, and then there's also a two-year phase-in for um, workers in the value chain. So those are think about that as workers that are involved in your 
product in some way or service, but don't actually, they're not legally your um, employees. And then there's some requirements around what they call affected communities. And that's one that's particularly um, challenging because I think not a lot of companies are collecting a lot of information related to that one currently. So that one also has a uh, has a phase in. So that's for companies with fewer than 750 employees. And they also had a few for that applies to sort of everybody, which is uh, um, and, and those actually just on the 750. Those are like exemptions or not exemptions, but deferrals for um, disclosure requirements. And for all companies, what they did was they were focused on the financial effects. Mm-hmm. So not so much the disclosures, but the the requirement to to sort of show what's the financial impact of these, which is you know another layer of work beyond just what's the I'll call it like the raw the raw data. So what they've done is they have a, a one year phase in for the anticipated financial effects. So it's not the historical, <laughs> but the the go forward, which you know again makes that one step harder to uh, come up with the information, but related to pollution, water, biodiversity, and the the circular economy requirements. Um, The other thing they did was have a one-year phase in related to some of the social indicators. So this is the uh, disabled people in in the workforce and um, protections for the workers and family leave and all of these kinds of things that, again, there's a, there's a phase in around those, uh, those requirements. Well, I definitely think that last phase in will be welcomed by many companies because to, you know, to the point I think that's being made, a lot of companies are not tracking that information now. And because some of it involves individual employees, it's not like you can just throw a lot of resources at it and say that this is solved. So I think these will be very welcomed by some companies. But anything else to add, Emily? Yeah, a few other things. Maybe just to add on to what Andreas was saying, too. One of the provisions they introduced that I that I thought was interesting is that even though these companies might not need to report under the specific topical standards, they do still require some disclosures if these topics are considered material for them. Um, and really, that's so that the, the minimum requirements of the directive itself are still met. So it's a little bit unclear exactly how that will work, but I think the idea is that there is still a need to consider whether these topics are material and, and if they are, have some type of disclosure, but that kind of remains to be seen in terms so of maybe not the that's... quantitative disclosure. So maybe you have to say something that this is relevant yes. and sort of more to come. <laughs> yep, <laughs> exactly, exactly. The other two things I would just quickly highlight is that they did also make some changes um, so that the draft standards were more coherent with the EU legal framework. So I would say maybe some more technical Mm -hmm. modifications um, and then also a number of editorial and other presentation type modifications. So they did more clearly show by adding bold italic text, what are defined terms, which I found to be very helpful. Yes. Um, So, you know, I think that was definitely a good change. Yes. Yeah, definitely to have like that one set of definitions too. So Andreas, let me go back to something I know you've been following very closely is that we've talked before here on the podcast, we have these three, the big three, which is the SEC climate proposal, and then the proposed human capital rules that we expect to see at some point. We have the CSRD proposal or soon to be past proposal. And then we have the actions and efforts of the International Sustainability Standards Board. And I think for many companies trying to understand how all these pieces fit together has been a big question. And we as a firm have to all of these standards setters been making comments interoperability, a a key word I don't think any of us ever used before, you know, 18 months ago, that's now sort of tip of the tongue. But what did we see from an interoperability point of view? I my take is big strides, but I'll be curious what 
what you would say. So remember the context here is that unlike maybe financial reporting where companies apply one set of accounting standards generally, we we know that certainly large multinationals will likely get caught and have to maybe apply multiple sets of standards. So one of the areas of cost and complexity is if the different standards have different requirements for, I'll call it essentially the same thing. And so when the initial versions of these three came out, they had often different definitions for what was essentially the same thing. Um, which creates confusion and complexity because if the words don't say exactly the same thing, well, then you that must mean that they mean something mm-hmm. different, which means you must need different information. Um, so now you're you know, com- compounding the, uh, the effort. So there's definitely a effort by FRAG and the ISSB to align on definition. So they aligned on materiality definition. Obviously, ESRS still has double materiality, but the financial materiality piece they've aligned. And there's just a number of other definitions in the climate space, for example, where they've reached an alignment so we don't have that uh, disconnect anymore. They also worked with GRI, which is something that they heavily leveraged in creating ESRS to try to eliminate some of these, I'll call them nuisance um, nuisance differences. But they've also worked through some more substantive things, and we don't know for sure how that looks until we see the final ISSB standards, which we expect um, on the, I think, the 26th of June. So we'll see them very soon um, to really see, because it wasn't just making changes to ESRS. The ISSB side, they made, or we expect they're going to make some changes as well to sort of narrow the the gap here. Um, And then once the ISSB standards are issued and once, I guess, ESRS stops moving, the the two have been working on an interoperability document, which will be sort of their view on what are the actual differences. And they're putting them in buckets in terms of, I'll call them like things that are really big differences and that may apply to lots of companies and could very well be material. And other buckets being things that are, you know, they're theoretical differences, probably not material, probably don't apply to most companies. And so to be comprehensive, we've tried to capture everything, but try to give people a sense for, you know, how large is the gap beyond the one you know, the one big one being single versus double materiality, which that is not going away, right? Right, and and I would add two things to that. One is you introduced a new acronym. So just again, for uh-uh. our uh, listeners, it's Global Reporting Initiative, GRI. And we have had previous podcasts with the um, CEO of GRI, who's Ilko van der Enden, and he has some interesting um, perspectives on how this global framework will work together. So I highly recommend listening to that if you haven't. The other point I'd make, though, is we talked here about interoperability, but I think a big question on the mind of many U.S. reporters SEC registrants would be, what about equivalence? Because that's a similar term. Equivalence is a term that SEC used in its request for comment last year asking, you know, should they accept reporting under another framework and um, specifically asking about the ISSB. So I know for a lot of U.S. companies, they're, they're waiting and very interested to see what the SEC does. So I think at least seeing alignment, more alignment between the ISSB and the ESRS is, is helpful from that point of view, although again, remains to be seen what we'll see there. So let me ask a follow-up. It's a very short comment period. It's only four weeks. And so, you know, if I'm a company, almost a week of that four weeks has already passed by the time we're releasing this podcast. Like, 
what would you recommend if companies are even thinking if this is something they want to weigh in on? Well, it's not just that there's a four-week comment period. It's because of the way the statute works in the EU that if they don't issue this by the end of August, and it's difficult to get things done in in the EU in August just because a lot of people are on vacation, so it's really more like the end of July most likely, it restarts the legislative clock on a whole bunch of things. And as best we can tell, nobody wants that result, which basically means not only is it a four-week comment period, but they basically have three and a half four weeks to do something with the input before they have to put the pencils down and everybody and everybody scatters. Um, I think what that means is you can't write them hundreds of comments. And certainly I wouldn't write them broad general. We don't like this because it's too complicated type comments because they're not going to be able to do anything with that um, in that type of a time frame. So I think you need to focus on fatal flaws. Whenever you do raise an issue, I think it's advisable to say, you know, we have a, issue with this particular provision and here's how we would suggest changing it. Now, it's probably helpful if it isn't always just delete it. Mm -hmm. Um, You you might phrase it better to make it clearer or you might do this to it to make it less onerous. Or So it's always easier for a standard setter to act on proposals or act on input if you actually tell them, like, here's what we suggest you do as opposed to we just don't like it. Um, So I think that uh, that certainly... um, applies here. Yeah, I would say that a similar question was asked during the the session that the European Commission did with FRAG. And they the commission really indicated that now is not the time to be rewriting the standards or making significant changes to the structure. So they're really looking for respondents to point out any real major difficulties in, in applying these standards. Uh, and, and there was a, a comment made that I, I thought was interesting, which is that they tried to make these standards proportionate. So they hope to get proportionate <laughs> responses. Um, so uh, that, that would be my my suggestion. Your advice. Well, and I do think, you know, I made a comment at the beginning of the podcast about the fact that we had originally expected to see these maybe even in April. But from looking at the standards, the European Commission did put a huge amount of time and effort into making changes. And so I think this advice now to to pinpoint sort of more fatal flaw and, and give specific recommendations makes sense. So let me move on then, because, and Andreas gave us a little bit of a preview of this, because he said that these need to be finalized by uh, August 31st, or there's sort of uh, broader timing implications. But Emily, what do we expect to see after the comment period closes? Yes, so the comment period will close on July 7th, and then the commission does still expect, as of now, to to finalize these and to adopt them by the end of July, but no later than the end of August, as Andreas mentioned. Uh, After that, the European Parliament and then the European and the Council of the European Union uh, will have a specified time period where they can um, object to, to these standards. Uh, but if, if they don't, then they'll be finalized into law, which we expect to happen by the end of the year. And one big difference I'll point out compared to the CSRD and the directive itself is that once these are finalized at the end of the year, then they're directly applicable for companies. So they don't need to go through this transposition process into national law like the, like the CSRD does. All right. That's very helpful. So then, Emily, the other thing that's top of mind, and again, I think we've at least alluded to this, is when will companies have to start reporting this information? 
Yeah. So the first set of companies that will be required to report are those that are already reporting under the non-financial reporting directive or NFRD today, which are generally really large listed companies, certain banks and financial institutions, um, but also very large issuers uh, will need to start reporting fiscal year 2024 information in 2025. All other EU companies that meet these specified size thresholds to be in scope would start reporting one year later. So fiscal year 2025 information reporting in 2026 and then um, listed small, medium sized entities will be the following year. And there's we haven't talked about it here, but this additional reporting requirement for non-EU headquartered companies, but that starts 2028 reporting in 2029. All right. And just from the fact we haven't mention that here, I don't want to underplay the importance is that if you are in scope with your EU subsidiaries, then I'd say it's almost certainty that you will have global reporting requirements as well, where you have to report on your global consolidated entity. As Emily said, that's later, and we're actually expecting or that they there will be new standards for that, but you don't want to lose sight of that as you're kind of thinking about your planning. So We've covered a lot. I think there's a lot more to come. I will preview. We'll be issuing a whole podcast series about these when we once they're fully final. But in the meantime, what would you suggest companies do right now? And Andreas, I'll go to you first. Yeah. So I think we've seen through this process, and even though as Emily highlighted, it's not completely done, but we know that the results are not going to be it's not going to happen or that there's going to be some dramatic reduction where six of the standards go away. So companies should start on the process, assuming that the final standards will look pretty much like the ones that we have uh, right now. And because uh, time is short for certain companies, it's already effective um, in a little over six months. And for a lot of companies, it's a year and, and six months. So not, not far. Um, so I wouldn't, wait to start until the dust settles on all of the various EC things that we, uh, that we just, that we just outlined. So that's number one. The second thing is the um, commission has recognized that two of the more problematic or challenging areas, probably a better way to say it, are materiality and the value chain. And there are working groups that are hard at work right now to come up with some interpretive guidance to help companies to tackle those issues because those are really the two where there's a lot of judgment and depending upon how you apply those you could end up with that there's a lot of information mm-hmm. you have to disclose or a you know a reasonable amount of information you can disclose and so having maybe some more guidance on what was the intent of of uh, the you know of the EU in uh, in coming up with these rules is it's going to be helpful now exactly when that's going to come out. We're not sure because they were working based on the November drafts mm-hmm. and now they have to sort of reboot their process a little bit and work based on this most recent set. Now, a lot of the words didn't change, so hopefully that doesn't delay things too much. Um, but certainly I think it's expected to be sometime you know later this year that they will publish something. We're not entirely sure what that document's going to look like yet, but something that provides more insight into the we would call the the two more challenging, open-ended sort of judgments that companies have to make. Emily, how about from you? Yeah, I would highlight two two points. You know, we've I think in the discussions that we've been having with a lot of companies, we're really seeing this as a cross-functional exercise. So it's not only the sustainability team, but also legals getting involved, given some of the complexities around interpret interpreting the scoping requirements. Also, seeing the accounting and finance controllership functions get involved given that you know this will be subject to assurance and 
there is generally a need, you know, to make sure that there are clear processes and controls in place for gathering this data, um, as well as, you know, a local EU team as well. So making sure that you have kind of all the relevant parties involved, uh, I, I think is really important. The other item I'd, I'd highlight is just that the that double materiality assessment is even more, it's always been critical, but even more critical now, given that more of these requirements are going to be subject to it. So you know, I, I know Andreas mentioned that there will be more guidance coming, but at least starting to think about how you might go about that process, I think is, is important. All right. We'll definitely agree with all that advice. I think particularly on the scoping. And then maybe the other thing I would add is I know, um, particularly Emily, in a lot of the conversations you and I have been having with companies, we get into a lot of conversations where people have just said, okay, I'm going to do my scoping, but I don't want to dive into the standards because I know they're changing. Well, if you haven't dived into the standards, they're not going to change that much more. We don't expect them to. So now is definitely the time. And Pick one, dive in, start understanding what's required because you know you don't want to get into the fall and now you're just starting to get up to speed because uh, that familiarity is going to be important and really understanding all that's required. So Emily, Andreas, is always such a pleasure to talk to you too. I think this is, as I mentioned, probably only the first of an ongoing conversation we're going to have as companies are, are implementing this, but definitely appreciate all the insight. Thank you. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.